So my mind goes back to a story about a pastor who was about to get up to preach and the choir sang a song about something like, we'll understand it all by and by. I don't think that was here, uh, but uh, we're glad that you're here today. Take your Bibles and go with me to James chapter 5. Yesterday, Teresa and I were getting up early enough to get our things together at the house and make our way out here because uh, we closed on our house here in Lumberton on Tuesday and we're trying to get everything together so that we can move on Saturday. And um, so we had some work to do out at the new house and so we got up and we were headed this way. And uh, because I'm a big spender, I took her to breakfast at Fuzzy's Tacos. (laughs) And we got inside, and she asked me if I had seen the guy outside, and there really wasn't very many people out and about at that point, and I said, no, I don't don't know what you're talking about. And she said, no, uh, right next to where we parked, there was a guy asleep in his car. And so... um, I thought about that for a while. It kind of worked on me while we were eating. And so as we left, I went over to her side of the car to help make sure she got in and, uh, well, to watch her get in. And, um, (laughs) And while I was over there, I was looking at the guy who was asleep in the car next to us. And the moment was pregnant with meaning for me because here we were about to go out to the house that we had purchased that or in well you know how that goes we the bank purchased it but uh we'll be paying them back for 900 years and uh, and we were going out to work on a house that would be ours we're driving out there in a car that's like yours, uh, in other words, it's you know worth more than a couple of thousand dollars at least. And next to us is a guy who clearly is living in his car. And everything he has, I'm guessing, is in that car with him. And he's having to sleep in a parking lot of a business. I wonder... For us, how much stuff is enough? I was looking in preparation for this sermon, uh, looking online. I went to Forbes' website, and in September, I believe it was in September, Forbes put out their list of the wealthiest Americans in 2015. I didn't make my way all the way through the list because it was fairly lengthy, but I I stopped at number 15, Uh, but in that top 15 at least, in America today, the top wealthiest people all make in in the double digits of the billions of dollars. Now, if that is what wealthy looks like, then I'm going to just go out on a limb looking at this crowd and think, probably none of you made the list, right? Right? Any billionaires in here? If there are, (laughs) 
uh, we got a lot of people who'd love to be friends with you. But um, Bill Gates tops the list of Forbes wealthiest Americans in 2015. And according to that, uh, he rakes in a cool $76 billion a year. Or he's worth that, I should say. Um, Jeff Bezos, I guess, is his name, number four. He's a guy with Amazon, the guy that keeps one of our guys busy hauling freight all the time. He's worth $47 billion. Mark Zuckerberg is the guy that most of us would know the name. He's the Facebook guy, $40.3 billion to fund your favorite pastime. Sheldon Adelson, number 15, $26 billion. The reason I'm intrigued with him is because he made his fortune by having casinos. So he made his fortune by playing off of the expectation or the desires of many other people to make their fortune. It's an interesting thing, the American uh, setup, our whole society and I, I'm certainly in favor of capital, capitalism, even though I can't say it very well. I'm in favor of it uh, as the way we do it. But I wonder, as it relates to American wealth and when we begin to see the amassing of huge sums of money, and I'm not just talking about those guys. I'll pull it down to us guys And we recognize that the poorest among us in this building today still makes more money and is worth more than most of the rest of the world. How much is enough? And the question that I want to drive what we do today is what are your values when it comes to valuables? Because the reality is, I think that most of us are fairly well junked up. Now, I know that this is a dangerous message on a couple of different fronts, all right? It's always dangerous when a preacher starts talking about money because people think that the preacher's trying to get in their wallet, all right? So let me just tell you now, my intent today is not to get into your wallet, all right? I'm not trying to give you money to me. No, I'm certainly not going to give you money to me. I... I'm not trying to get you to give money to me. I'm not even trying today to get you to give money to this church. Because it's not really so much about me or this church. It is about us today. What are your values when it comes to valuables? It's dangerous any time a preacher goes to talk about money. People don't want to hear that. But we've been in the study of James in this little letter that now we find is just packed with meaning for us in the practical expression of our Christian lives. James writes this letter to that early Christian church and he's fleshing out for them some of the teachings of his half-brother Jesus. He's fleshing out some of these things about, okay, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ and how does that impact me every day? So we've entitled this series, Faith, It Works. 
and, and it's not so much that we can look at it and go, oh yeah, that works. It is our faith has to work itself out. It's not just a mental thing where we go, okay, I believe in Jesus. Okay, I've made this mental decision to follow him. Okay, I've trusted him with my life. Now faith has to work itself out through your hands, through your feet, the way you live your life. And today, James is going to tell us in this fifth chapter, your faith has to work in your wallet. People don't like these kind of sermons, all right? So I'm going to make it easy on you. I'm going to keep it relatively short. We'll be out by the time the Cowboys play, which is August. But I want us to look today at these first, really seven verses, but we'll call it the first six verses of James chapter five. And here's what James does for us. He, He starts off, by making it sound like he's talking to the rich people and he's taking it to them. But the reality is, I think that James is brilliant in the way he writes this because this is a rhetorical device that he uses. He's talking about and to one group of people, and that's the rich. But in the process of that, he's also addressing the deep-seated concerns and anxiety and anger even of not the rich people, but the poor people. We find that in verse seven. So let me start there and then we'll bounce back up into verse one. And James says in verse seven, be patient therefore brothers. And let me just stop there. That therefore points its way backwards. So the first six verses here, James is going to talk to rich people and the way they've abused their wealth uh, and the people that are not so rich. But in the process of doing that, he undergirds for those not-so-rich people that God, in fact, knows their plight. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. In other words, the justification, the judgment that you're looking for will come maybe not in this lifetime. In other words, your life financially may not get better, but in the end, God is aware. Latter part there. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. James says, just hang in there. Back up to verse verse 1. And now we get the word to the rich people. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. Now, those are two words that James now points them back to their Hebrew roots. He goes backwards to those great prophets of old that we find listed throughout the latter part of the Old Testament, their Hebrew Bible, Isaiah, who took up the cause of those poor who were being mishandled by the rich. Amos and those other minor prophets, we call them, who spoke into the reality of a Jewish uh, system that favored the abuse of people who had very little. The prophetic voice stretches now through James when he says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers, uh, 
laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by... uh, Let me back over. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James says with this, your faith has to work in your wallet. So let's be clear about something. James is not saying that it's sinful to be wealthy. Now, some of you are going, it's a good thing because I got all of this money I'm sitting on. And now most of us don't think that way. As a matter of fact, most of us look at what we have, whatever that is, and think consistently, how do I get more? James is not saying that that's wrong necessarily. He, even though there are those Christian groups who would say to us, uh, you need to pare down everything you have, you need to get rid of everything you have so that you don't have anything that gets in your way of hearing from God. Now, there's enough truth in those kind of statements to give us pause to step back and go, okay, so is that a true statement? But there have always been, well, maybe not always, but there have long been those people in the Christian uh, mindset that say, if you have any wealth at all, then you're being sinful. That is not what James is saying here. My mind goes back to Francis. Now, in uh, uh, in the Catholic world, Francis is a saint, Uh, his Francis of Assisi, and that might mean something to some of us, but we could go back and, and matter of fact, if you want just good biographical reading in Christian history, you ought to go read his story. Because here's a guy who had it all. He was the jet-setting party boy of his day in the early 1200s. His dad was wealthy. He was born into this wealthy family. He loved great clothing. He loved all of the stuff that comes with being wealthy. But God got through to him. It's a great story. You ought to go read it because when God got through to him, it changed his mindset about wealth and material possession to the point that he gave up everything he had. There's that group of people who following that model believe that that's the way to follow Christ. You just get rid of everything you have. James is not arguing for that here. There is this debate that goes on among biblical scholars as to whom James is writing here. Is he writing to people who are outside of the church, who have money, who are oppressing those Christians who are not so wealthy, I would even say poor, inside the church? So non-Christians, and James is calling them to task? Or is he talking to those people inside the church who were wealthy, who had chosen to follow Christ and yet they still continued to mistreat those people who didn't have money. My question to those biblical scholars who want to argue about that is, does it really matter which group he's writing to? The reality is this is an ethical decision that these wealthy people were making against people. James says, if that's who you are, then you may be comfortable today but there's judgment waiting for you. It's an example. I'm intrigued by the way we handle this kind of stuff. 
What is James saying here? Those people, I think this is what he's saying. Those people who are poor, who are being oppressed, can be sure that God is taking note of that and will hold accountable those people who are wealthy. Here's the structure of his argument, and then we're going to dive straight through this quickly and then to the application, and I'll be done today. First, there is verse 1, the call to lament. It is an imperative. It is a strong statement. It is this call. He even uses a word that's only used here in the entire New Testament. James wants to get their attention. You need to listen to this, he says. Verses 2 and 3, the first indictment are for those who are hoarding wealth. The word pictures that he gives attacks those three main areas that they measured wealth in the first century. Clothing and this stockpiling of uh, precious metal coins. Uh, And much of the time they would take those and bury them out in a field or in their property somewhere so that nobody else could get them. He says essentially in verses 2 and 3 that those things that they had that measured their wealth rotted out and rusted out. Not because they were being used, but just the opposite. They were just there. It's, it's something that I have that I can hold on to that helps me know that I made it in life. James says there's a day coming that those will testify against you. The second one, verse 4, the indictment now is not against hoarding as it is in verse 2 and 3, but now it's against specifically the mistreatment of the poor in order to further themselves. So I'm going to read verse 4 for you, and then I'm going to go back and read out of Deuteronomy 24. In verse 4, one more time, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Listen to how that communicates or connects, excuse me, with Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, where God says through Moses to the children of Israel in the law, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it. Lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. James picks up on that language and highlights the fact that there were those people who had substance. They were withholding it from the people who earned a daily wage. Verse 5, the third indictment against these wealthy people is at the point of self-indulgence. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. They profited over the Roman occupation. Finally, verse 6 speaks to betrayal. Betrayal of the fellow man. Even though they are not the same economically, they are still the same. In God's eyes, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you, and the implication of that is that he cannot resist you. So here's what James is doing. He is underscoring for them a truth that we must understand. I'll I'll go back to the question that I asked you earlier. 
What are your values when it comes to valuables? If he's not condemning the accumulation of wealth, and he's not, then he must be pushing us towards some other end here. Your faith is a heart issue. It's not just a head issue. It's a heart issue. And the reality of that heart issue is that how our hearts are is the way we tend to live our lives every day. So the question becomes, how do you see people? Let's take it. Let's take it off of the guy in the car who was living in his car next to me and let's put it onto the guy or the woman who populates the corners of Beaumont, Texas. At those major intersections where there are people who are standing there with many of them a little piece of cardboard that they've torn off of a box somewhere and they've scribbled on that some kind of a message that says, if you'll help me, I'll appreciate it. How do you see those people? When you pull up to that intersection, how do you see them? Now, let's be honest, okay? Most of us are pulling up to those intersections in vehicles that cost us at least $15,000, $20,000. And some of our vehicles are worth a lot more than that. If we had to sleep in our vehicles, it might be a little more comfortable uh, than what some other people are sleeping in. I'm not attacking the wealth that we have. I'm asking about how we use the wealth that we have. So how do you see those people at those intersections? But here's the kicker. I wonder how those people at those intersections see us. What James is saying is we need to strike a balance here. It is not acceptable for a child of God to accumulate great quantities of wealth only to keep it for themselves. If God has blessed you and honored you with wealth, he expects you to play that out into the lives of people who just don't have much. Now that could look like a lot of different things, but let me give you, and I'm going to close with this. Let me give you an example of how that's played out in my life. You got to understand that I came to this whole thing. Uh, well, first of all, I didn't ever come to the whole thing of wealth. That's a whole nother story. But I came to this understanding of God and what he expects of us with the junk that we have. By the way, I, I, I said this to the early service. Maybe it's a good thing for us to say here. We have, in American society, we have perfected the stacking up of junk. Now, junk, in my terminology here, is just kind of materialistic stuff. But we are so good at that that we have an entire industry that recycles junk. Here's what that's called. It's called antique shops. Hey, now wait a minute. And my, see, now the preacher got personal, right? All right, so here's how that works, okay? Somebody has junk, and so they decide they don't want that junk, and so they take it and either sell it or, people like me, 
I just don't want the junk so much, I'll give it away, right? Uh, So the junk industry gets new junk. But you know what they do? One out of every 100 of them, I'm guessing, decides I could sell this junk. And so they open a little store and they put this nice, sophisticated name on it, antique store, and other people go in and say, I need more junk. I know this because I've walked through 10 million and five junk stores in my life. Oh, I loved every one of them. That's what my wife said. Right. Okay, so I just want to make sure that we're on the same page here, right? We recycle our junk. We are junked up. To what end? So let me, let me come back to what James is saying here. And again, I'll close with this illustration. About the time that I was beginning to understand the whole thing about God's blessing his people and then those people understanding their role as stewards of that, managers of God's wealth. I learned that. I, I, my dad, bless his heart, tried to teach my brother and me some things, but uh, we were pretty dense, and on the money side of it, my brother and I have had many conversations. My dad squeezes a dime and gets $3 out of it. My brother and I are the ones who make up the other two ninety. We just seem to give it away through the years. And, uh, and so when I finally started learning this whole idea of God's blessing on his people uh, and where our wealth and material stuff comes in, uh, God put a, a good saintly deacon in my life who began to teach me something of this idea of stewardship. And God had blessed this guy and he owned his own company and he was making money hand over fist. Um, and so I started in my conversations with him, I started asking him questions because I was watching how he managed his own money and his, you know, so this was many years ago in another church and uh, he just kind of took me under his wing a little bit and started teaching me some things And here's the fundamental lesson that he taught me. Mark, the money that I have and the stuff that I have, it's not mine. It's all God's. That sounds a little strange outside of church. But the implications of understanding that truth are powerful in your daily life. Because when you begin to recognize that whatever you have is a gift from God, That means that God wants you to use that in a way that he would use that. See, I think that's where we miss it sometimes. We have a a spiritual synaptic gap there that we just don't quite, the signal doesn't quite jump sometimes. Because sometimes in our world today, in our Christian world today, we hear God wants to bless you. And we hear that and that becomes, oh man, I'm fixing to get wealthy. And then our prayers begin to reflect the fact that we want stuff, junk in this context. But the reality is that if God is going to junk you up, then that junk has a purpose in his kingdom. And so you become the manager of God's stuff. You see, now I'm back to where I started here. I'm not trying to get in your wallet. I'm not trying to get you to give to me or this church. I'm trying to let God make that connection with you that if you have anything, it's because he's given it to you. So you manage that for him. Your faith has to work in your wallet. 
So about the time that I was starting to get that message really deeply ingrained in me, God put this guy in my life. And, and the way that worked out, and I've used pieces of this illustration before, I'm going to try to give you a fuller picture of it, but God put me in contact with a guy named Charles. And the deal was I had gotten a phone call from the funeral home that was just down from the church where I was serving at the time. And they said that there had been a man who had died. He was a veteran of World War II. He was with Patton's group that marched across Europe. And, uh, and this gentleman had passed away. His family wanted a religious uh, funeral. And so the guy called me. He didn't know me very well if he wanted religious, but that's another story. But so the funeral director called me and said, hey, this family needs somebody. We had an agreement at our church that if that ever happened, either I or one of my staff would go and do the funeral for them. And so I said, I'll do it for him. I went and did his funeral. And at the end of it, I had a gentleman, his name was Charles. He came up to me and he said, hey, I was such and the guy we just were burying. He said, I I was his buddy. As a matter of fact, we went to high school together. We went through the war together together. And uh, he was my friend. And I just wanted you to know, I really appreciated the way you did his funeral. And I wonder if you would do mine. And so I politely told him I had plans that afternoon, so I couldn't do it then. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, so we, we began a friendship there. And in that, he said, he said Mark, my, uh, my wife is in the middle stages of Alzheimer's. And I don't know if she knows the Lord or not. I, I can't be sure that her salvation is secure. Now that prompted a discussion with him. And as it turns out, he was a Baptist from way back. He, he even in Southern Baptist life, he had uh, people in his background who were some of the framers of the original Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, this guy went way back. But he had fallen out after the war. He said, the war just ruined me on a lot of things. And he said, we didn't really go to church. And he said, I, I made peace with the Lord and I've been saved for a long time. But he said, I don't know about my wife and I'm afraid she's going to be so far in Alzheimer's that she won't know who Christ is. Would you come talk to her? <laughs> yes. And so I made the arrangements to go over there. So I went over and I talked to her and it was kind of a several visit kind of a thing. And, uh, and Charles, on one of those visits, called me into the back room and he, he wasn't able to get out anymore. He was taking care of her. And on top of that, he, his health was such that he couldn't get out. And so he, uh, he called me to the back room and she was in the front and he said, okay, he said, I, I've been trying to get to know you. And he said, I think I can trust you. And I want you to help me. I said, okay, what do you want? He said, uh, God has been good to me. He was in the insurance business and he said, I made more money than I could ever spend. And he said, and I have more money now than I have days left. And I know that. And he said, and I have a heart for children who don't have stuff. And he started telling me, because one of the main applications of that were children who had clothes that were only hand-me-downs from their big brothers and sisters. And it just broke his heart. And he, every time he would talk to it, he would cry about it. And, and well, I found out through the course of that that the reason that was a big part of him is because that was him before. 
And he would go to school with shoes that were too big or shirts with holes in it. And people would laugh at him because they couldn't afford to buy him clothes and his brothers and sisters too. And, and so he said, I, I want you to help me. And he said, I can't get out anymore. But I want you to help me find those kids who need help, really need help. And then I want you to come back to me, and through you, I want to help them. And so began a new phase of my training in this reality of God owns it all, and we're just stewards. So I started looking where I wasn't looking before. I started seeing children who were from families that were destitute and not having enough food. And I could go back to him and I'd say, hey, this is the deal. And he'd say, okay, here's some money. I want you to go and get a grocery card for them and you take it over there so that they can have food. Uh, I started seeing kids who didn't have the clothing like he talked about. And so I stood that and, and I became the conduit. I, I was just the, the manager for him. And, and I would say, here's a kid. And he would say, okay, and... Uh, and it, it was an amazing experience for me. But in the midst of that, Teresa had a friend who had a daughter. This was, lady was a single mom. Had a daughter who desperately needed significant dental work. And so I went to Charles and I said, okay, here's one. This one's not, you know, $150 for clothes. This is, this is a big one. He said, it doesn't matter how much it is. You tell me what they need. And so I started explaining the situation to him, and he just started crying. So he took care of that girl's dental stuff. Now, while that's going on, that's a blessing in and of itself. If you can ever be part of that, as the funder or as the conduit, either way, it's an incredible thing. But in the midst of that, that little girl's mama, who had been running from God, came to know Christ as her Savior. I got a chance. I had a chance to baptize her. I think it was the last one before I left Edinburgh to come here. And for years, she had run from Christ. And because of a friend who knew Christ, who was inputting to her, that was my wife. And because of another person who didn't know her at all, who was taking care of her daughter's dental expenses, that lady gave her life to Christ. Today, that lady is a Sunday school teacher for single moms. Now, the situations of our life are way too complex for us to tie it down to just one thing. But here's the common denominator in that. God used one guy to reach somebody for his kingdom. It took many other people to get there. But it was the faithfulness of one person who was well-resourced, who understood his role as a manager of God's resources. So are you junked up? If you are, for what? What will you do with the resources you have? Let's pray.
as we come to this prayer, I want to make sure that you understand that if you don't know Jesus Christ and he is not the Savior of your life, you're missing the greatest blessing that you can imagine. But it's really bigger than that even. You can't even have life without him. And this life is a preparation for the life to come. And he comes into your life, and as he steps into your life, he brings incredible resource for you. But if you don't know him as your Savior, all of that is outside the realm of who you are. And so the first step is to invite him into your life. And I would invite you to do that today. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today is a great day to take that step. And we'd love to do that. I'll be down front. Aaron, Stephanie will be at the back. If you want to catch one of us, we'd be happy to talk to you about Christ and his claims on your life and the life that he gives to you. So during this invitation time, just grab one of us. Many of us have more resource than we're willing to admit. And it's been easy for us most of our lives to just do it for us. What might God be saying to you through all of this? This is a good time to figure that out. So, Father, we ask you to take this time and use it for your glory, that you would teach us, that you would convict us, that you would draw us to the decisions that you want us to make today. In Jesus' name, amen.